You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Ross Strader. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Remind you, next week we will begin a series in the Gospel of John. We will start next week in chapter 1 and walk through that gospel together as a church, and so I'm excited about that. A couple of other announcements. Um, I know Todd talked about life groups, but out, out in the foyer, you'll see several opportunities for you to uh, get connected, for you to kind of answer the, the question, you know, so what's next? If I've been around here at Bethel for a while, what's next for me? Well, out in the lobby, there are opportunities to sign up for women's Bible study uh, that will begin um, next week or the week after that, maybe two weeks. And then there is uh, life groups. If you are interested in being a part of a life group, I encourage you to stop by that desk out there and uh, sign up. There are also opportunities to uh, get connected and serve in our family ministry. So we have some folks out there that are saying, we want you to come serve with us. And you think, well, they probably already have everybody they need in family ministry to work with uh, uh, the kids on our campus. And I would say, no, they, we don't. So we would love for you to join us in that. Then there's one other one, and it's right out here to my left, if you walk right out there. And it's a table where you can uh, walk up and sign up, um, participate in this uh, fall in Financial Peace University. It's a fantastic um, 10-week study, I think it's 10 weeks, but it's an opportunity for you to, with some other folks, walk through what God has to say about our finances and how we steward those and what we do with them and what we do with them and what that says about our heart, and there are some very practical implications. Maybe you're here this morning and feeling the, the weight of financial pressure. Well, this is a great opportunity for you to find your way out from under that weight do that in community. This has um, addresses real problems with some real and biblical answers. And so we have done this um, several times as a church, and it has always been beneficial to those that have been a part of it. So I invite you to, to check that out. So we're in Acts chapter 16, and I'm going to begin really the only way you can in Acts chapter 16, and that's with the 18th. I don't know if you remember it, 1983. It uh, launched, it was a television series that lasted for five years, 96 episodes to be exact. It opened up with a monologue every week that talked about this, uh, these four guys, they were Army Special Forces group, they were court-martialed for a crime they did not commit, and then it always said this, today, still wanted by the government. They survive as soldiers of fortune, and if you have a problem and no one else can help, and if you can find them, maybe you can hire the A-team. I mean, just hearing that makes me want to go home today and binge all 96 episodes. The team, made up of no less than one Hannibal, played, played by George Picard. You also had B.A. Baracus, stood for Bad Attitude, Caracas, in case you were wondering, Kevin, Murdoch, and then Face, of course. Hannibal's great line, he was the leader of the group, and he always would 
uh, would uh, take the problem, he would address the problem with the most elaborate and crazy plan that you've ever seen. And then the next hour, the next 40 minutes between commercials, it would, um, the plan would absolutely unravel. Things would never go the way they were supposed to. And always at the end, the problem always got solved. The bow always got tied on the end of the service, I mean on the end of the episode. And then you'd see Hannibal, and he'd have a big cigar in his mouth, and his line was, I love it when a plan comes together. And you laugh along with everybody else because you realize the plan that he had um, didn't go at all like it was supposed to. And yet in the end, it all turned out the way it was. You know, we, we are a people who we like knowing. We crave security, and we want control, and we want predictability, and we like it when a plan comes together. And I think often what happens is, is we think going into something or going into a decision or going into life, or a season of life, that, that, that we know the path that will ultimately take us to where we want to go, or, or, we, or we're sure the path is going to lead us to where we're supposed to be. It's interesting. 3,000 years ago, the writer of Proverbs addresses this. In chapter 16 of Proverbs, he says, The heart of a man or a woman plans his ways but it's the Lord who establishes his steps. A couple of chapters later, the writer of Proverbs brings it up again, and he says this in chapter 19, Many are the plans of a, uh, in, a man, in the mind of a man. Many are the plans in the mind of a man. But it's the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Isaiah speaks, and, and um, this is God, and what God declares about himself in Isaiah 46. And God says, only I can tell the future before it happens. Everything I plan will come to pass. For I do whatever I wish. The ESV says that I will accomplish my purposes. You know, as we begin this this morning, looking at Acts chapter 16, I, I want to ask you, are you in a place where you really trust God? Do you really trust Him with your future? Do you really trust Him with the plans that you've made? Trust Him enough to see all of those plans be unraveled. And you find yourself really at the mercy of the God who knows all things, who has promised, I will accomplish what I've set out. And He's also promised that I'll never leave you I'll never forsake you. You know what I think as believers, particularly believers in the 21st century that live in the West, we struggle with this mightily. Well, that brings me to Acts chapter 16. I think it's one of the most fascinating chapters in all of the book of Acts, and Acts has a lot of fascinating chapters. And to set it up, what we have, it is between, um, well, What's happened is Paul has already gone on his first missionary journey, he and Barnabas. They've traveled around. They have planted some churches. They have been stoned, left for dead, run out of town. They end up coming back to Antioch, which is where they were sent from, and they are rejoicing for all that God has done because in the midst of all of that 
pain, all that suffering, all those trials. Paul had preached the gospel. People had heard the gospel. They had believed in Jesus. And in those places, churches were formed. So Paul comes back. He reports all that has happened. There is this um, problem that arises in the church, and this is what Acts 15 deals with, the chapter just before. And it is a council that takes place in Jerusalem because for now, the, for the very first time, the church is confronted uh, with some changes. And namely, the biggest change is this is not a Jewish-only affair anymore. That God has seen to it that he is um, going to save the Gentiles, the pagans, the everybody else, right along with the chosen people. And that what Jesus has done, he has done for all. So they have a council in chapter 15, and all the big wigs of the church at that time, James, Jesus' brother. You've got Peter there. You've got all the apostles that are still alive. Paul goes. He makes his case. They declare that, you know what, we don't need to add any requirements to the Gentiles, namely that they don't have to be sacrificed. They don't have to memorize the Torah. They, they can come just as they we will trust God's Spirit to sanctify them into who they will be. So armed with that, they send Paul and Barnabas out at the beginning of what is known as the second missionary journey. And the idea is that Paul and Barnabas, they would go, they would uh, deliver this news, they would go back to the churches they had planted, uh, they would begin with Antioch, the, the place that the controversy had arisen, and so Paul and Barnabas are going to do this. And they say at the end of chapter 15, let, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim to the word of the Lord and see how they are. I mean, Paul and Barnabas, they had it all figured out. Man, they were a great team. You know, by this time in the church, nobody thought about Paul and didn't think about Barnabas and, like, and, and the other way around. Well, what happens at the beginning of this missionary journey is pretty fascinating. Barnabas who's the brother of encouragement, says, hey, Paul, let's, let's give my nephew, Mark, one more shot. Well, the first missionary journey, they'd taken Mark, and before things had even gotten tough, Mark had failed and gone back home to his mom. And uh, so Paul was done with him. In fact, the text tells us at the end of 15 that there rose a sharp, between Paul and Barnabas. In fact, so much so that they parted ways. Paul took, I mean, Barnabas took Mark and he went his way. Paul, he ends up taking a guy named Silas that had come onto the scene and he goes his way. And they part company. Well, that's how the second missionary journey begins. It's not at all like they had planned. And then I want you to see something else. Beginning in verse or chapter 16, verse 1, says, Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra, and a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium, and Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places. For they all knew that his father was a Greek. 
As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and the elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in number. Now, there's a couple of things I want you to notice about this that, that um, we wouldn't want to miss in this. Um, I like to call Acts chapter 16 the day that nobody planned for. Because it is a recurring scene of, of Paul encountering um, different people, and they end up having a day that nobody could have planned for, including Paul himself. So in this, they go back. They're going to go to Derby and Lystra. They'd already been to Derby and Lystra. If you went back to chapter 14, um, you'd find that Derby and Lystra um, are the are the places, uh, Lystra particularly, the place where um, Paul famously was stoned and left for dead. He had gone. He had preached the gospel there. They stoned him. They left him for dead. He goes away. He ends up coming back, encourages the brothers there, enough so that we know that a church was founded in Lystra despite Paul's end there. So what he does, and maybe it's been a year later, he comes back, maybe two, he comes back, he goes into Lystra, and um, it's interesting that he meets a guy there named Timothy, called the disciple. So Timothy was young. And uh, we find out that his mother was Jewish, his father was Greek, and we, we don't know how old he is here. He could be, you know, um, somewhere in his teenage years. Because 10 to 15 years later, Paul's going to write a letter to Timothy, who's the pastor of Ephesus at that time, and tell him not to be intimidated because of how young he is. So even 10 years after this, he's going to be considered young. Timothy's in the youth group there in Lystra. Okay? And he was a disciple, along with his grandmother and his mother. We find that out from uh, what Paul writes to him in the letters to Timothy. The church is healthy. They've got elders, and the Spirit appoints the elders for the care of the souls of the congregation. And Timothy had grown in faith because his mom and his grandmother had, had poured their faith into him. The elders of the church, um, the the men who were in his life, his dad was, we're led to believe, was not in his life, but the men around him were. And they poured into Timothy's life. Reminds us there's this partnership of discipleship with the church and the home. We should be pouring into the children of our church. But something else happens in Lystra, and it is part of Timothy's spiritual growth. He would have witnessed Paul and Barnabas and their suffering the first time they were there. I mean, I would imagine that it would have been burned into his mind that here he saw this man who came, he preached the gospel, the gospel that his mother believed, his grandmother believed, that all of these men in his life believed, that a church was started. They've been doing church for a couple of years, but it would have always likely had the story that, hey, you remember how we started? We started because Paul came here, and the, and the, the Jews and, the, and the, uh, some pagans, they, they stoned him. They kicked him out of town. They stoned him. They left him. We thought Paul was dead. That's what Timothy would have witnessed. The next verse tells us that um, Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him. I take this to mean, I think Timothy was was sold out. I mean, he was a 
He was all in as a, as a follower of Christ. He, he saw a faith that was real. It was real in his mother. It was real in his grandmother. He saw elders that were godly men, and they led the church well. He saw Paul and Barnabas suffer well for their faith in Jesus. It's an interesting profile of Timothy. You know, today we talk about a lot, the statistics are that 80% or more kids will grow up in a church and leave the church. And I, I dare say I don't know any parents that, that attend church that hope that their children will grow up and abandon the church someday. But there's a responsibility we all bear. So parents, I, I want to talk to you for a second. Your children have to see you as being part of the church. If church is just something you do, you know, an hour on Sunday, a couple of times a month, that communicates something to your children. It communicates something to your children about church. communicates something to your children about your faith. See, I, I think our kids need to see us be involved in church. I think our kids need to see us be involved in, in small groups and in Bible studies. I think our kids need to see that what happens on Sunday morning carries over into the week, into our life at home. That our kids would, would witness our faith more than just a Sunday morning. I'd say that if you're serving in the church, bring your kids along with you. Take them along with you. If you teach Sunday school, take them with you. If you greet at the door, take them with you. This is your church. This is their church. God's knitting us together for his purposes. As a church, listen, Bethel as a church wants to partner with you as a parent. We you know, we we continue to to lean into that. We want the children that grow up here to become disciples, not merely consumers. I mean, you know the pressure today, you know, if keep children entertained and stimulated and figure out how to do an app so that they can open the app and have Sunday school on an app because um, they don't, you know, they don't know how to talk to each other. I, I'll tell you, I, I um, we, we, we want to lean into the kids not merely being entertained, and I'm all for fun. We, we want them to be disciples. We don't want to be guilty of entertaining in the short run and losing them in the long run. Spiritual growth is a lifelong journey. We want to we be about building a foundation. And I would say this, though. If you're a consumer of the church, that it is not a place where your, your faith is growing, that you are invested in the lives of other people, and, and, and other people are invested in your life. And I think at some point you're kids are going to wonder. They're going to wonder about your faith. They're going to wonder about their faith. Is faith real? Now I'm uh, harping on this for a second, but it, this is good for all of us. It's, an, it's practical application for us to remember in a lot of areas of our life. You know, when you're going through a difficult time in your life, if you have kids at home, it's good for them to see. 
your faith being tested. It's good for them to be a part of the prayers that you pray. Grandparents, I think you have the same opportunity to do that. You're not off the hook. You know, when, when they, they need to know that when life is hardest for you, your faith is still there. Because listen, are your children prepared? Your grandchildren prepared? If God should happen to call them into the ministry, like he called Timothy? What about if he calls them into a difficult work setting or to a difficult marriage? Will they already have tested their faith in hardship? Will they already know the, the, the echoes or the first fruits of what endurance is? I mean, I'd say this. Listen, if the goals for our children are centered around them never suffering or, 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 or never hurting or, or never being tested or having to endure hardship or unfairness, then, you, then I would go so far as to say that we, that we are parenting completely different than the way God parents. Now, we're called the children of God. And it's interestingly enough, you know what God does? He promises suffering. Actually, in 1 Peter chapter 1 and James chapter 1, and those aren't the only places, but in 1 Peter chapter 1, the, the, the Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes to the church, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. On, it's just testing the genuineness of your faith, and it, that that faith, that genuineness of faith, is more precious than, than gold. He says. James one, James will say, "Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet the trials of various kinds. The testing of your faith produces steadfastness." And he goes on, "Let that steadfastness have its full effect. Be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing." And, you know, if you think about it, it's fascinating. The God of the universe is actually able, if he so desired, the God of the universe has the ability to prevent all suffering, all of it. And yet he doesn't. Instead, he promises it. He redeems it for our good and for his glory. And I think as parents, as grandparents, I think it's a good question to ask. What is God's divine preparation going on here in our children's lives? To, to grow in a faith that's strengthened for life in this world. I don't think we need to be too quick to save our children from every heartbreak or difficulty or uncomfortable circumstance that comes along. I mean, I know parents that have dedicated their life energy to the cause of fairness for their children. I've heard of helicopter parents, you know, the ones that hover over all the time. There's also, Kevin, I think you were the first person to tell me, the lawnmower parent. The, the one that just gets out in front and just, you know, seeks to clear the way to eliminate every obstacle and to secure every advantage. And, and it's interesting, that is not how God, that's how not, that is not how God is a parent to us as children. I think if we're careful, if we're not careful, we, we end up confusing. You know, the, uh, God's will for our kids and, and 
something like the American dream. Sometimes we want so much for our kids to grow up and to have you know, the best education and be a, have a successful career and live in a nice house and marry a wealthy person. And, and you know, I'm still hoping for that. You know, give us grandchildren to, to be someday. We've got to be careful. Psalm 139. God's the one that forms them in the womb. He's the one that has a plan for their days. That they would come to know his son as their savior. That they would walk in the good works that he prepared for them. That they would be godly. That they would um, be godly husbands and wives and parents. And that they would live in the world, but not of the world. The strangers and aliens who, who long for an eternal city. That they would love Christ more than themselves. more than any pleasure that can be found here. You know, we live, the world's changing so fast. Next 10, 15, 20 years, we don't have any idea in some ways what that holds. You know, what, is, what does technology do? What does our economy do? What does the government do? And, and thank God's will that our children will be prepared to live live for him whether through suffering whether through abundance let me ask you this question if you're a parent here granted does it does your heart sink to think God may have called your child to take the gospel to an unreached people group are you pursuing God's known will for your children, or are you pursuing your own dreams and your own aspirations? We're stewards of that. As parents, as grandparents, as a, as a church. You know, I think that's why what's so fascinating to me about Timothy, that he could see men undergo the kind of suffering that they went through. First chance, his faith has grown to a place to say, "I'm, I'm going with them." And it has everything to do with his grandmother, his mother, with the men and the elders and the women in the church. So he joins the missionary team. churches, we find out, are strengthened, and they increase in number. And then Paul, and I'm realizing I'm not going to get through this whole chapter, but just hear this. Nothing in chapter 16 goes the way that Paul plans it. In fact, what you find out in, in verses 6 through 10, look with me, it says, And they went through the region of uh, Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia. But the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Trous, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night, a man of Macedonia, which was Greece. I mean, it was, it was a, you had to get in a boat and go to it. It was, a, it was uncharted territory. It was the West. A man from Macedonia was standing over there urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. 
When Paul had seen the vision immediately, we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. This is hard to see, and maybe if if we slow down enough, we can see it, but but Paul, that is not Paul's plan. That was not what was written in his daytimer. Back then they had still had Franklin Covey daytimers back then. It's not what was written down. It, it wasn't the, you know, the things you said, well, okay, well, I'm going to do this, and then I'm going to do this, and we're, so we're going to go here and, and re, you know, check on the brothers, and then we've got this new territory. And Jesus comes along by his Spirit because the will of God is no pole. That's not where you're going to go. can't go up north there, so he travels a little further west, and, and then and it tries to go up north there to Bithynia, and the Spirit of Jesus says, no. So Paul finds himself in a place called Trous, which is very near the old ancient city of Troy. And he's just waiting waiting to see where God's going to lead him. And a vision shows up, and a man from Macedonia, the Macedonian called, the call from the west, get in a boat and sail to Macedonia. And the place in Macedonia was Philippi. It's interesting. When I talk about this, or I, we, we look at the letter to the Philippians, I'm always reminded that, that our church here at Bethel, if we were to trace our roots, we were to do one of those um, you know, DNA swabs, and find out where we came from. You know, we mailed it in and they sent it back. It'd be Philippi. It would be this. It would be this moment. This is where we come from. This this call of Paul to a place that wasn't on his radar at all. And it's interesting. I'm going to show you one more thing. In verse 10, do you see where it says, And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Damascus. To Macedonia. That's the first we in this letter, this, this, I mean, this telling, this act of the apostle. Luke is the author. This is where Luke meets up with Paul. He's a Greek. He's a physician. Probably had his life all planned out. The gospel came, wrecked it. And then he gets teamed up with a guy named Paul, and he hasn't even begun to know what hardship is. So Paul, having the day he never planned, picks up a guy named Timothy, who I'm sure didn't know what awaited him that day. Here he is. He picks up Luke, and they head to Philippi. Well, it's fascinating. I'll just sum up the rest of what happens in chapter 16. They go to Philippi. They meet a woman named Lydia. Lydia's from a place called Thyatira. She's from Asia Minor. She's living over here in Greece now. She has a business. She's a seller of purple. We find out that she is a God-fearer, which means this, that she'd grown up likely with the humanism of Plato. She'd grown up under the Stoic philosophers. She'd had a, uh, she, she would have grown up under some polytheistic, philosophical way of life, and this is where li- the meaning of life is found. And she'd come to a place and said, you know what, meaning of life's not found there. She meets some Jews along the way. She becomes a God-fearer. She begins to try to live by the Old Testament. She's made maybe a new start here in Philippi. Probably a widow. She's probably wealthy. She has her own home. She's the head of her household. She sells fancy clothes to fancy people. 
and she comes to a place like you where she says, you know what, I'm good. I've achieved some things, I've made a fresh start, I've overcome some obstacles, but, but here I am, I'm a woman in the, uh, in, in the, in the West, and I, I, I'm wealthy, I have, I have it going for I me. Mean, you know, she, she'd be on the cover of, of you know, business magazine, the, the successful CEO woman. And Paul shows up with the gospel and the way that it says it in the text. is um, in verse 14, but the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And what was said by Paul was the gospel. Let me tell you something. I, I pray all the time that maybe some of you showed up here and you think, you know what, I've got all this together. I mean, maybe because we live in the South or we live where we live in East Texas, I, you know, and I need to go be a part of a church. It's a place where I need to see and be seen and I need to network and church is good and it's good for my family and I do really need to be here. But listen, I have already achieved many of the things that I've, I've set out after. I've, I've already reached a place where, where I'm really glad to be. And I'm even, if you were to press me, I'm a God-fearer. I don't, want to, I don't want to do anything to make God mad. My prayer all the time is that your heart would be opened, that God would open your heart to pay attention to what's being said. Because that's not enough. Listen, maybe it is enough to, uh, to get by and to feel good about yourself and to think, man, I've really got the world by the tail But at the end of the day, it's a, when eternity is accounted for, it is not enough. Your success here does not translate to eternity. And what I pray is that the Lord would open your heart, that you would hear the gospel, you would hear your need for a Savior, that you'd know the need that what Jesus did in dying on the cross, He did that. He does something for you you could never do for yourself. You know, I think there are others. The, the next person he encounters is a woman. Um, this is fascinating. She's a slave girl. She's probably a teenager. She has, in verse 16, a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. We could go into that. There was a spirit. She probably had it. She was demon-possessed. She had a certain spirit that would speak prophecies or speak truths, and, and uh, they, they, uh, they, they had her kind of like a circus. You could pay, and she could tell you the future, and these guys made a lot of money off of her. She's likely a teenage girl. This is the, in the ancient Near East. That's what they, the profile was. She'd likely been sold into slavery by her parents because they just didn't know what to do with her. And these guys were making a bunch of money off of her. And Paul and Silas, and now Timothy, are walking around here in Philippi. They are um, uh, trying to get to know people. They are looking for a place to hear the gospel, and this demon-possessed girl continues to follow them everywhere they go, and she says, crying out, these men, in verse 17, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. 
And she does this probably for a couple of days. And here's what's fascinating. Paul gets so frustrated by it, so annoyed, that he turns around and in a sharp time casts the demon out of her so that she will leave him alone. It's fascinating. One of the reasons why that we can trust the New Testament being true. We've seen Paul and Barnabas have a sharp dispute. We can see Paul here losing his temper. Man, maybe Paul had enough. Maybe he'd had enough of all his plans not going his own way. And to add insult to injury, here's this girl. She's following him around. She's driving him crazy. So he turns around. He casts the demon outside out of her. And, and if I can say it this way, all hell breaks loose for Paul and Philippi. The police come, they arrest him because the merchants, they're mad. They're not making money off of her anymore. They come, they arrest him, they beat him. He and Silas, they beat him so bad. I mean, they're, they're, they're bloodied, they're broken. They get thrown now into jail. I'm sure Silas is saying to Paul, seriously, that, that, that was your plan? Interestingly enough, in a moment of frustration, Paul does something. It ends up landing him in prison, but yet prison was right where God wanted him to be. An earthquake comes. The chains fall off. They encounter a uh, jailer, Roman jailer, who is sure that the prisoners have escaped. And if they've escaped, his only option in life is to face a Roman court-martial, which would have ended in his death, or to kill himself before that happened. And just as he's about to kill himself, Paul yells out, hey, don't, don't do it. We're still here. The jailer comes, he gets Paul and says, hey, listen, you, you must be a man of God. I've seen these things that are happening. What must I do to be saved? And so Paul gives him the gospel. The jailer takes him home, cleans up his wound. He tells the gospel to his family. They're all baptized. It's in the middle of of the night, the Wild West. Next morning, they, they come. They're going to release Paul, and uh, all that gets smoothed out. Paul says, no, I, I'm not leaving here that way. I need to be publicly vindicated, and so he is. In Philippi, he's left this way. Paul's come to a place he didn't want to go. It wasn't in his plan. First person he encounters is in widowed, rich woman. <clears throat> Second person he encounters is a demon-possessed slave girl. The third person he encounters is a suicide jailer. And there you have all the marks of a perfectly planned church plan. You know, if somebody showed up and said, hey, listen, we've got this idea, we want to plan a church, um, will, will Bethel be a part of this? We say, okay, great, well, tell me what you've got. And they say, well, listen, here's what we've got. We've got an elderly woman, uh, she's got some money, but then we also have this girl, she used to be demon-possessed, but a couple of days ago, she, she's not anymore. And then this guy, um, you know, he's, he's an average guy, struggles with depression, a little bit suicidal, but we're set to go. That was all God needed. By the end of the chapter, by the end of his brief stay in Philippi, people had come to know the gospel. A church is planted. 
and that church will become to Paul the greatest supporter of his ministry and the ministry of those who are taking the gospel around. In fact, when Paul is in jail, he'll write to the Philippians, and he'll use the word joy more than any other time, and it's because of the Philippians. When I think about you, he says, when I think about that day, that day I didn't plan for, the day I was frustrated and confused and didn't know what God was doing, but when I think about that day and what God was doing, I give thanks for you all the time in every one of my prayers. so thankful that the plans I had were thwarted by a God who always accomplishes His plans. You know, life's a mysterious journey and it's full of unexpected twists and turns. And we've got to be honest this morning. The path ahead of us is a mystery. None of us can say with all certainty what's around the next bend. And it may be a smooth road and a lovely valley, or we may discover a bridge that's been washed out and no way to cross over the deep water. Often the road will seem to disappear or may suddenly seem to go three different directions and we don't know which way. But there is one who knows. He knows the way because he knows the past, the present, and the future. And all are the same to him. Darkness to him is as light. He knows the way. He's promised to direct your path. He has said, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. For he has planned, he will do. You can count on that. Like the Asians, at the end of the day, we're able to pray that we love it. Would you bow with me and let's pray? Father, I pray that.